So uh, at this time, I'd like to welcome everyone, especially our newcomers. It's good to see you this morning. If you're new, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. Please turn to John chapter 18. As we have entered into chapter 18, which focuses on the morning of Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then the two trials he would be put through before being crucified. The first being a religious trial, the second being a civil trial. The first trial took place before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, the second one before Pilate, the Roman governor of the region. Now, we've already looked at the religious trial Jesus was put through, and now we want to uh, continue looking at the civil trial uh, that he endured that morning. And so let's kind of back up a little bit, get a running start on today's study, Matthew, excuse me, John 18, starting with verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. This would be Paul, uh, um, Pilate's official court, the Hall of Judgment, this courtroom. It was early in the morning, but they themselves did not go into the Praetorium lest they should be defiled. Amazing. But they might, that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Now let's jump to verse 33. As the accusation was he claims to be a king, king of the Jews. So verse 33, Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew, your own nation? And the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. So Jesus explained to Pilate that, yes, he was a king, but not like Pilate imagined. Uh, that his kingdom was not of this world. He had no standing army. His followers didn't fight. And his kingdom was basically an inward kingdom based on truth. Now, this conversation convinced Pilate that Jesus was not a dangerous revolutionary. Maybe a bit of a weirdo, and that's okay. Because Jesus and his followers are often considered as weird in the eyes of unbelievers. I can live with that, okay? But the conversation convinced Pilate that he wasn't dealing with a dangerous revolutionary, and so he rendered a verdict of not guilty by declaring, I find no fault in him at all. But the Jewish rulers were adamant that Pilate condemned Jesus, and so they kept repeating their charges. And in the course of shouting their accusations, they mentioned that Jesus was from Galilee. <laughs> now, when Pilate heard that, he saw a way out of this dilemma, okay? This is probably the first case he adjudicated that morning. And you know what? 
He wasn't, I don't know if his Starbucks kicked in yet. He, he was just not feeling it. He wanted to drop kick this into somebody else's lap in the worst way. So when he heard that Jesus was actually from Galilee, well, that solved the problem because Galilee was Herod's jurisdiction. And so he sent Jesus to Herod, who was in town, Jerusalem, for the Feast of Passover. So he sent Jesus to Herod, thinking that he was now free from this somewhat unusual prisoner. Now, guys, this begins the second phase of Jesus' trial, his civil trial, as he now stands before Herod. Now, this account of Jesus hearing before Herod only appears in Luke's Gospel. So turn to Luke chapter 23. Keep your finger in John 18 now. Luke 23. And let's pick it up in verse 8. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Oh, goody, maybe this man will entertain me. So Herod questioned him, Jesus, with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Now, guys, the Herod mentioned here is Herod Antipas, who was one of the sons of Herod the Great. Herod, when Herod the Great died, um, his kingdom was divided between his three sons, Herod uh, Antipas, Archelaus, and Philip. You, of course, remember that Herod the Great was the Herod that had the babies in Bethlehem slaughtered, uh, which we remember at Christmas time especially, right? But he had the babies in Bethlehem slaughtered who were two years old and under, under in a uh, twisted demonic attempt to keep Messiah from reigning. His son Antipas was the Herod that was empowered during Jesus' earthly life and ministry, the Herod we read about in the Gospels. Now, Herod Antipas wasn't a, good, a great ruler. He wasn't even a good ruler. His rule was characterized by selfishness and deception. It's interesting that when Jesus met Herod, he, he uh, had absolutely nothing to say to him, not a single word, as we read in the text. Now, some might be prone to think, why was that? I mean, the Lord didn't even give Herod a chance to hear the gospel before he shuts him down and won't speak to him. That doesn't seem fair. You have to understand something. Herod had already received ample opportunities to repent and receive Jesus as his Savior during his many talks with John the Baptist. Scripture teaches us that Herod seems to have had a fascination with John. We don't know why. Maybe because John lived such a simple life, living out in the, under the stars, uh, eating locusts and wild honey, seemed to be a happy man. He had purpose. He had a ministry. And here, per, uh, here Herod uh, lives a life of opulence. He's got a palace. He's king of the whole region. And, but he's miserable. He's no doubt empty. And so John's life fascinated him. So every chance he got, he would call John in. And don't you know, John being the zealot that he was, John the Baptist, uh, John witnessed to him when Herod asked him, why are you out in the wilderness crying out for people to, you know, understand something. You may not understand this. Herod was a relative of the Jewish people. 
you remember how that it says that the Jews didn't want Herod to be their king uh, because he was not even a Jew. He was Idumean. In other words, he was a descendant of, the, of, of Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. He was uh, an Edomite. And you have to understand that even though they were brothers, Jacob and Esau, Jacob went on to become the father of the Jewish people, right? The 12 tribes. Whereas, um, you know, the Edomites broke away to do their own thing and grew up, uh, the nation grew up pretty much in a godless way. So it wasn't that Herod was unfamiliar with the Jewish scriptures. I'm sure he knew that. And so when he asked John, what are you doing out there, living out there and, and, and crying out and, 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 and so on, uh, I'm sure John said to him, well, Herod, I'm a fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament, Isaiah 40, verse 3, although the verses weren't numbered in those days. One crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. I am been called by God to be the forerunner of the Messiah. So I'm out there telling people, repent, the Messiah is coming, get your heart ready. I'm sure he laid a heavy witness on Herod every single time he appeared before him. But Herod did nothing with this information. It basically went in one ear and out the other. And that's really the background that we have to understand. Now, as we come to this incident where Jesus is now standing before Herod, and Herod for the first time sees Jesus uh, face to face, and now the Lord had nothing to say to him. The opportunities had come to an end. The time to receive Jesus had run out, and the Lord's silence was in effect the silence of judgment upon Herod's life. Look, a person will only get so much time to decide what they're going to do with Jesus. Make no mistake about it. The day of God's grace will eventually come to an end, giving way to the night of eternal darkness and judgment in hell. That's why God said in Genesis 6, verse 3, My spirit will not strive with man forever. And that's why the writers of the New Testament said, Today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, but accept Christ while you still have a chance, because tomorrow is not promised to anyone. James says our lives are like a vapor here today, gone tomorrow. While you still have a chance, receive Christ as your Savior. Now look, I said the first service, and before you turn off your brain because I've said something shocking, I believe a lot of people are going to be in hell who believed in Jesus. <gasps> what? They believed in him with their head, but never made a commitment with, to him with their heart. They grew up in church, went to Awana's Sunday school, they knew the gospel, and they believed the gospel. They believed Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Savior of the world, their personal Savior who died to save them from their sins. And I believe there's a lot of folks right now who are fully convinced in their hearts that one day they're going to get right with God. They, they believe Jesus is the Savior, but they're not ready just yet. They want to, I don't know, sow a few more wild oats, I guess. But someday, they're going to get right with God. And I believe, yes, in hell, there is going to be atheists and agnostics. But I believe you're going to have a lot of religious people that were not unbelievers in the classic sense of not believing who Jesus was and the gospel. 
It's just that they put off too long what they should have done immediately. And this is why we have to understand that there's nothing, there's no day more important than the day in which you are living, watching online too, to get your life right with Jesus Christ now. Don't put it off. You may not get it tomorrow. And then for all eternity, you will be weeping and wailing and gnashing your teeth that you could have gone to heaven, but instead now eternal separation from God awaits you. Now, at least when Jesus stood before Pilate, he did answer some of his questions because Pilate didn't have any previous information. God is a lot more patient uh, and all with flat-out unbelievers who don't know the truth than he is with people who have heard the truth, like Herod, but have closed their hearts to it. Jesus was a little more willing to work with a pilot because Pilate was a total, flat-out, secular guy. So Jesus did answer some of his questions. Here's the thing, though, I want you to understand. Pilate and Herod thought, as do every single skeptic and unbeliever, they thought they were sitting in judgment of Jesus, right? Little did they realize that what they decided to do with Jesus, listen, on the day they were living, what they decided to do with Jesus in their day was going to judge and condemn them someday when they stood before, when they stand, will stand before him on that day, the day of judgment. This is very important that we understand. When people hear the gospel and they judge whether or not they're going to believe it and receive Christ or maybe reject the whole thing out of hand, they're not really sitting in judgment of Jesus. Any more than a goofy, lousy art critic stands before the Mona Lisa and says, eh, I don't think it's so great. Look, the Mona Lisa's not on trial. I mean, that painting's a classic. You're on trial. You're a lousy art critic. Jesus Christ is not on trial. He is the Son of God. And there's no dispute about that. You reject him. You're not rejecting him. You're, re you're punishing, you're judging yourself someday. So again, Luke 23, verse 11, when Herod, with his men of war, you know, when Jesus didn't say a word to Herod, so then they decided they're going to mock him. So Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. And so now, guys, Pilate finds Jesus standing in front of him once again. Now, I find this is the case with everyone who is being asked to make a judgment about Jesus. As much as they try to get out of making a decision, the Holy Spirit keeps bringing Jesus before them, in front of them. That guy at work or that gal keeps leaving the tracks on your desk. Every time you turn this radio station, there's somebody preaching the gospel. Good heavens, at Easter and Christmas, you're hearing the gospel nonstop. That's because God is very tenacious and he loves us so much he doesn't want anyone to go to hell so he keeps badgering them he keeps badgering them and putting the lord jesus christ in front of them trying to get them to soften their hearts after a while where they 
eventually will receive him and, 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 and as their Savior. And, and praise God he's so tenacious. He loves us so much. Thank God he doesn't give all of us one shot and we're done. Like he did the holy angels before they became fallen angels. One shot and they were done. They rebelled once. They were done forever. But he gives us multiple opportunities to repent. I mean, most people don't ever receive Christ uh, the first time the gospel is presented to them. And so God keeps pursuing them and pursuing them. And thank God he's so tenacious. Right? Thank God. I just imagine the Holy Spirit running us down, running us. We're running, running, and he's behind us, and he finally tackles us to the ground. And we say, you know what? I can't fight this. Like the pastor. You know him. Grandfather was a pastor. Father was a pastor. He felt God wanted him to be a pastor. Didn't want to do it. Didn't want to be a pastor. Fighting God, fighting God. One day, driving his car down the highway, something happened. It was some kind of an accident. He was ejected from the car, and he went sliding down the highway on his backside. Never even changed lanes, he said. <laughs> Did a number on his backside. Gets up, crawls over to the side of the road, and says, God, I cannot fight this kind of pressure. I give in. You want me to be a pastor? I'll be a pastor. He's a pretty good pastor. God will pursue you. And if he has to, like Jacob, cripple you in some way. <gasps> what? Jacob, whose name means heel catcher, scoundrel, master of my own fate, Jacob, always fighting God, always wrestling with God, till finally the Lord Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance uh, wrestled with Jacob all night, touched the hollow of his thigh, threw it out of joint, crippling the man so he couldn't physically run anymore, and changed his name from Jacob to what? Israel, which means governed of God. If God is to cripple us in this life, and it might be financial, it doesn't always have to be health. If he has to take something away that's keeping us from him, he'll do that. If he's got, if he then, so he can then change our names from whatever Jacob to Israel, someone who was now truly governed by God. Amen. That's much better than letting us go to hell forever. So Luke twenty-three verse thirteen. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them. You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. So I, he didn't just send Jesus. He sent all of Jesus' accusers to Herod. That's what he's saying here. And indeed, nothing deserving of death. We have determined, me and Herod, has been done by this man. He's innocent. Now, guys, at this point, Pilate tries, I think, to end this charade of the Jewish leadership seeking to railroad an innocent man. And he does so by putting into practice an annual goodwill gesture towards the Jewish population, live, population living in and around Jerusalem. This is a custom that apparently the Jewish leaders had asked Pilate to adopt. And 
It was a good public relations uh, move. So he does. And that was to release a Jewish prisoner every year at Passover time. I say they must have requested it because of what we read uh, in John 18, verse 39. And I'm trying to piece together for you guys, so we're jumping around to the various Gospels. So I want to piece together a fuller picture of what was going on that day. But in, in John 18, verse 39, Pilate said, But you have a custom, speaking to the Jewish leaders, that I should release someone to you at Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now again, as we've already pointed out, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent and wanted to let him go. So he chose the most hardcore, wicked criminal in his jail. Pulls this terrible person out of jail, stands him next to Jesus in front of the crowd. You couldn't have a more glaring dichotomy. Two ends of the spectrum, to say the least right? The sinless, perfect, loving Son of God on the one hand, and a vile career criminal on the other. Well, Pilate figured the people would no doubt choose Jesus to be released instead of Barabbas, because after all, the Jews called Jesus their king. Certainly, they would choose their king over a notorious criminal, right? That's what he thought, but that's not what happened. John 18, 40, then they all cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber, among some other things. Why did the crowd choose Barabbas over Jesus? Well, you don't have to turn to it, but the scriptures tell us why. In Matthew 27, verse 20, we read, The chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Okay, but... How did the Jewish leadership persuade the multitudes, Jewish multitudes, to choose Barabbas and condemn Jesus? How'd they do that? Well, it was probably through a combination of bribes, intimidation, and that. And I think this was probably the most pressing reason that they were able to do this. Because they convinced the crowd, Jewish crowd, that Barabbas was more likely to be their Messiah than Jesus. You see, at least Barabbas had, to try, had tried to lead a revolt against Rome, which in their minds was what the Messiah was going to do when he showed up. He was going to lead them in a revolt against Roman government, throw off the, the yoke of Roman oppression, and establish his kingdom, right? In their minds, he was going to be a military guy, a general of some kind. They viewed Jesus as a pacifist who taught his followers to love their enemies. This could be the Messiah. Messiah's going to be a warrior, not a wimp. Barabbas must, more likely Barabbas is our guy than Jesus. That's kind of how I think it came down. Who was this Barabbas? Again, the Gospels tell us he was a thief, a murderer, and an insurrectionist, probably among some other wonderful qualities. He was a bad dude. The name, this is interesting, don't, don't miss this. The name Barabbas literally means son of the father, Bar Abba, son of the father. The question is, son of what father? Well, he obviously wasn't a son of God the father, that's for sure, because of the life he was living. 
He was really a son of the devil. As Jesus put it in John chapter 8 of the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. Guys, don't miss this, because of all the people that the Holy Spirit could have chose to stand next to Jesus that day for the Jewish people to choose, he, he chooses a guy named Barabbas to set up this, uh, this you know, typology. This scene where the Jews reject their real Messiah, the son of the heavenly father for Barabbas, the son of another father, Satan, who was a rebel murderer, an insurrectionist, and a thief, listen, is a foreshadowing of how someday the nation, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, someday in the future, will choose the ultimate son of Satan, the Antichrist, a false Messiah. They will choose him over their true Messiah, Jesus Christ. They're going to choose the Antichrist, who initially they're going to believe to be the true Messiah, at least for a time. Jesus prophesied about this in John 5, verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, and me you rejected, another will come in his own name, him you will receive. Speaking of the Antichrist, right? Him you will receive, but we know from Scripture, only for a while. Their eyes are going to be opened at the midpoint of the tribulation period when the Antichrist goes into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem sets up his image in the Holy of Holies and demands to be worshipped as God. Jesus said, when you see that, Matthew 24, 15, run. Don't even go back into your houses to get your clothes. He said, run to the wilderness as fast as you can because at that time a wave of persecution is going to be, it's going to be released against the Jewish people primarily. It will encompass many more, all believers in Christ. It will be a, a persecution the Jewish people have never seen from the beginning of their nation till that point, nor will ever see again. Now, as I said, Pilate was hoping that the crowd would choose Jesus instead of Barabbas. Turn to Matthew now. Take your finger on Luke. Turn to Matthew 27. And let me just kind of reread what we've already looked at. But Matthew 27, starting with verse 15. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one, one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a, a notorious prisoner called Barabbas in jail at that time. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? It's Passover time. We do this every year. You've requested this from me. I've, I've gone ahead and honored your request. So look, it's Passover. Every year, uh, you asked me to release a prisoner. Um, who do you want? Barabbas released or Jesus who was called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him, Jesus, over because of envy. Now guys, let me just say this. Pilate seems to have begun presiding over this trial uh, of Jesus in a calm, rational, and professional way. I mean, he had no doubt presided over hundreds of cases by this point. He's six years in to his uh, role as uh, governor of the region, right? And so in the, in the six years he's been uh, uh, ruling, he has no doubt presided over hundreds of cases. 
And I'm sure when Pilate opened his court early that morning, and the court opened at sunrise, it was early. I'm sure that when Pilate opened his court early that morning, and shortly thereafter, some leaders of the Sanhedrin came to him with a prisoner in tow. He figured this would be no different from any other case he had sat in judgment over during the last six years. But upon hearing the accusations against Jesus and questioning him personally, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent and was being railroaded by the Jewish leadership. Now listen, that in and of itself wasn't so unusual. What do I mean? Well, people are falsely accused all the time by those who have it in for them for whatever reason, right? Pilate knew that, okay? Nothing out of the ordinary there for a guy who's a judge or a gal who's a judge. They know this. However, listen, what was odd was that this man being falsely accused wasn't trying to defend himself. And that struck Pilate as extremely odd, to say the least. I mean, that was very unusual, especially because Pilate had heard many, an accused man over the years, loudly defending uh, themselves, declaring their innocence, or at very least, crying out for mercy. Yet when Pilate tried to get Jesus to say something in his own defense, he was silent, as we read in Matthew 27, verse 12. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Guys, we know that Jesus' silence that morning was the fulfillment of prophecy. Not the least of which is Isaiah 53, verse 7. He, he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Jesus was silent because, listen, he had come to die. That was his mission, right? John 12, what, verse 27, he said, For this cause I have come into the world to die. He was innocent, but he came to die for the guilty. So guys, we know why Jesus was silent that morning. But put yourself in Pilate's Adidas shoes, or whatever he was wearing that morning, in his sandals. To Pilate, this was, we, we know why Jesus was silent. But to Pilate, th Pilate, this was extremely odd behavior, listen, to the point of being somewhat disturbing. Somewhat disturbing. That a man being accused of a capital crime wasn't defending himself. On top of that, Matthew records something that no other gospel writer records. Something which, no doubt, listen, added to Pilate's dissolving composure. And I choose my words carefully. His dissolving composure. Taking into account that the Romans were very superstitious people. And that is right in the middle of this trial, Pilate's wife, Procula, sends him a message. He's sitting on the judgment seat, judging this man from Galilee, who is extremely unusual, to say the least, to the point where Pilate's getting a little bit 
agitated, not in a, 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 an angry way, but in kind of a scared way. Because this guy is not acting normal. What is going on here? I mean, all the norms were broken. This guy, Pilate had heard hundreds of cases over the last six years. All of a sudden, he's got a guy accused of, of a capital crime, and he just stands there. He won't defend himself, won't say a word in his defense. Pilate's shaking his head. He, what is going on here? And in the middle of everything, he gets a letter, a note from his wife, right? Matthew 27, 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man. The Greek word is the word we get our word righteous from. Have nothing to do, interesting, a pagan woman, Roman woman is calling Jesus a righteous man. For I have nothing to do with this righteous man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Guys, whether or not this dream came from the Holy Spirit, we're not told. I believe it did. But it does beg the question, will God use dreams to communicate things to unbelievers? Will he? I believe the answer is absolutely yes. And one of the things I will put forth as evidence is how many Muslims, and no doubt there are others, that Jesus is appearing to in visions and dreams, preaching the gospel to them because many have never heard the gospel. Their leaders of the countries they live in have cut that off, the gospel being preached on radio and television and internet they've cut all that off so what is the lord doing he's bypassing man and he's appearing to muslims all over the world i one report i've gotten is a million muslims a month from all over the world are coming to christ we have a family a couple in the church she grew up uh, they grew up in persia as muslims and the lord appeared to her three times in a dream preached the gospel and she has gotten saved her and her husband I know it's happening. But whether or not you believe that that's what happened, it doesn't matter. Because one thing is for sure, the Romans believed, they did believe, that the gods used dreams to communicate to mortals. And the fact that Pilate's own wife had a dream, warning him not to pass judgment on this innocent, this righteous man, listen, seems to have so unnerved Pilate. Now you got to put yourself in his place. All these things that begin to add up. They're a mountain now. Is, he, everywhere he looks, he sees evidence that something's not right here. And now his wife tells him, get out of this thing. Have nothing to do with judging this man. And when she sent that note to him, I believe it's so unnerved Pilate, listen, it could have been the main reason why he tried so hard to let Jesus go. Just a thought. But if Pilate was feeling a little anxious up to this point, hang on. Anxiety is about to turn to full-blown panic. Full-blown panic in just a short while as we're going to see. But first things first. First things first. Again, it's obvious from the Gospels that Pilate didn't want to execute Jesus. He knew he was innocent. He knew the Jewish leaders had delivered him to Pilate because of envy. So he thought that by scourging Jesus, 
it would satisfy their bloodlust and allow him, Pilate, to finally let this prophet from Galilee go free, this guy named Jesus. I can, you know, be done with this. And so we read now in John 19, verse 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, mocking him, of course. And they struck him with their hands, their fists. Pilate then went out again because Pilate and his men are in the praetorium, the judgment hall. The Jewish leaders won't come in. They don't want to defile themselves, these very godly religious people. Uh, they don't want to go into Pilate's judgment hall and defile themselves so they couldn't eat then the first meal of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which connected to Passover, was all, often called the Passover, Passover time. Okay, we've talked about that. So now they had Jesus scourged. They mock him, put a crown of thorns on his head, a robe on him, struck him with their hands, with their fists. And Pilate, verse 4, went out again from the praetorium and said to the Jewish leaders, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. We're not sure how to take this last statement by Pilate, Behold the man. Was he saying, Look at this man. Look at this man. Surely he's been put through enough punishment for whatever crime you think he's guilty of. I mean, I think it's time now that we stop this abuse. I'll let him go. Let's end this thing. Is that what he is saying? Could be. Or this statement might be Pilate's way of expressing his awe and admiration for somebody who had been beaten so badly and listened, was still standing on two feet. And so what Pilate could be saying is, wow, here standing before you is a real man. I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen a man go through what he's been put through. And that wasn't even the cross yet. That could be what Pilate had in mind. Maybe a little both. We don't know. Either way, the bottom line is that unless you understand how brutal a scourging was, you won't have the capacity to appreciate why Pilate said this, nor the depth of what Jesus endured to save us. Let me just give you a little synopsis about a Roman scourging. And please understand a Roman scourging was not the same as a Jewish lashing. The Jews would inflict 40 lashes minus one on people who had committed crimes. The Jewish people would. When Paul says, I endured five um, lashings, 40 lashings minus one, people say, well, Paul was scourged five times. No, Paul was not scourged five times. He was beaten with lashes five times by the Jews in the towns where he was pre preaching the gospel. But Jesus was scourged. A scourging was different, much, much more severe. Listen, a scourging was, was done at the scourging post. 
where the prisoner was stripped naked from the neck to the waist and tied, bent over, so that his back was fully exposed and his skin was stretched tight. The scourge itself consisted of a wooden handle wrapped in leather from which on one end protruded nine leather straps. All up and down each strap was embedded little pieces of jagged bone or sharp shards of broken pottery. And on the end of each leather strap was a small lead weight so that the lash would have its maximum velocity. This whip, guys, was designed to rip out pieces of flesh with every lash. The Romans actually used scourging as an interrogation method. You say, what do you mean? If you were convicted back then, excuse me, accused of several crimes, we'll say, and you didn't acknowledge it, you didn't admit it, often Rome would have you scourged. And as the soldier brought the first lash down on your back, if you did confess one of the crimes they thought you were guilty of, the next lash would be a little lighter. If you confessed another crime, the next lash a little lighter. If you did not confess any crimes, each lash became progressively more intense. Our Savior had nothing to confess. He was innocent. And so, and I don't know how many lashes I tried to find out how many lashes the Romans used to scourge people. I think it all depended on the case. I'm sure it wasn't five or six. It was probably a lot. But our Lord Jesus Christ was silent. He had nothing to confess. He had done no wrong. That meant that that soldier kept bringing that lash down harder and harder. And towards the end of whatever amount of lashes Jesus endured, that soldier was bringing that whip across his back with full fury. I can't even hardly imagine that. Full fury. The, the scourging was so brutal, history records, that a man's back was reduced to raw hamburger, often exposing ribs and even some organs. Again, history records that some men went insane from the agony, the pain. And many others died right there at the scourging post from loss of blood. It was so brutal, in fact, that Rome forbid its own citizens from being scourged. This saved Paul from a couple of scourgings. As the Romans were about to have him scourged, and he said, look, is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman citizen? And they were like, what, you're a Roman citizen? Yes. With a lot of money, I purchased my citizenship. How'd you become a Roman citizen? I was born that way. Oh, boy. You didn't touch a Roman citizen, especially one that hadn't been accused of a crime, excuse me, convicted of a crime, but you certainly didn't scourge a Roman citizen. Rome had forbid it. It was so brutal, and eventually Rome outlawed the practice altogether. It was so barbaric. Now, guys, the question, and we'll end with this, the question that Christians have wrestled with over the years, maybe you have, why, if our salvation was purchased by Jesus dying on the cross, why did he have to endure the scourging also? Well, I believe in many others. His suffering and death for our sins consisted of both the scourging and the cross. Both were involved in Jesus' atoning work on our behalf. Listen, 
There are numerous places in the Old Testament that prophesied that Jesus would die, the Messiah would die by crucifixion. I'll give you two examples. You have to turn these, you can write them down. Psalm 22, verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me. This is Jesus hanging on the cross. You have to remember, understand something. When Jesus said this, David is prophesying. Jesus speaking now through David. A thousand years roughly um, before Jesus would appear on the earth having been born of Mary, right? When Jesus prophesying through David, Psalm 22, as he is hanging on the cross looking down, you have to understand that this psalm was written a thousand years before crucifixion was even invented. And crucifixion was not invented by the Romans, it was invented by the Persians. And the reason they invented such a horrible death like this is they wanted to lift a person up off the ground because they worshipped the ground, the earth. And they didn't want to defile the earth with a person being killed right there on the ground. So they lifted the person up so they could kill him through crucifixion. The Persians invented it, the Romans perfected it. And they turned it into an art form, a grisly art form to say the least. They took a lot of pride in this. They, they really, maximum pain. But David said in Psalm 22, verse 16, uh, David, Jesus speaking, actually, the dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Psalm 22, verse 16. Zechariah 12, 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Speaking of when Messiah finally comes, appears, and they see him, the Jewish people, they're going to mourn because they will realize fully that they killed their true Messiah. They're going to mourn. They killed him through having him crucified. So the Bible does speak of, in different places, that Messiah would be crucified. But there are verses in the Old Testament that also predicted he would be scourged as well. I'll give you two of those. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who struck me. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the beating that we, he endured for us. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Speaking of the lash marks, the scourge on Jesus' back. Now, guys, I have to believe because of all the scriptures involved in Jesus atoning for us that both the scourging and the crucifixion together was how the Lord Jesus paid for our sins. And that leaves us speechless and humbled by the depth of his love for us. I'm going to save this for chapter 21. But Paul said in Ephesians 2, verse 7, that for all eternity 
Every time we look at Jesus, we're going to be reminded of the depth of his love for us. Why? Because I believe, as John saw the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 5 and described it this way, I turned and saw a lamb as it had been slain. We'll leave it at that. But I want you to remember, it wasn't just the scourging. Remember that what led up to the scourging that morning? Jesus first stood before the Sanhedrin. And eventually Caiaphas, the high priest's personal guard, his police, wound up beating up Jesus pretty good. Then he went to Pilate. And Pilate's soldiers beat him with closed fists, who then put a crown of thorns on his head. And guys, don't think of rose thorns. These are six-inch Judean thorns, hard as nails. I have seen these thorns with my own eyes in Jerusalem. They took a, 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 a bunch of, a branch of six-inch Judean thorns, wove it together, placed this crown, quote-unquote, on Jesus' head, and then took rods and beat it into his skull. And then, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 52, verse 14, they pulled his beard out with, his, with their hands, so disfiguring our Savior that Isaiah says he was no longer recognizable as a human being. And then on top of all of that, you add the brutal scourging. You can see, you can begin to understand why Pilate believed the crowd's thirst for blood would be finally satisfied so that he could... At this point now, let Jesus go free. That's what Pilate thought would be the case. However, that wasn't how it turned out. And so we will pick it up next week, God willing, as we finish looking at the trial of Jesus standing before Pilate the second time. And uh, we continue on studying God's word as hard as it is sometimes. But we come away with an awe of his great love for us. We'll pick it up next week. Father, we thank you for, well, your word, yes. We thank you for, your, for sending your son to die for us. And Jesus, we thank you that you were not forced to do anything. You were a willing sacrifice who said, no one takes my life from me by force. No one could, of course. I give it freely for the sheep. And so, Lord, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. And, Lord, of course, you're not asking us to try to repay you for what you did. We could never could. But, Lord, every time we think about your great love and what you went through to save us, give us grace to live for you, to stand for you, to honor you, to worship you. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.